already preached a little earlier by Sandy. <laughs> Praise the Lord, the Shema. Uh, and uh, good to have Rodney and Belinda here. Thank you for and just uh, cluing us into the fact that God has emotions because we're coming into Passion Week in the book of Mark, and Jesus is emotional. He's um, heartbroken about what he sees when he comes to Jerusalem. It's really challenging for him emotionally. You know, he sees all of the, the priests and the elders that want a lot of honor and are grandstanding and just want to look good rather than really caring for the people. And this touches Jesus' heart. It's a, it's a challenge for him. And so he goes through a process, you know, in this 11th and 12th chapter of Mark to kind of deconstruct kind of the legalism and the religiosity of the day and say, okay, um, how do we kind of frame shift? How do we change this into true religion, something that's, that's real? And so I'd like to begin by reading a poem. It's by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. So there's this contrast, and we see it all through the Bible, of people that see and people that don't see, starting in Genesis with Cain and Abel. People that see and people that don't see. Are we going to be people that see or people that don't see? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, would you encounter us today? Would you encounter our minds, our hearts, our emotions as we read your holy word, which is the plumb line of our existence as believers? Lord, help us to see things as you see them. Help us to think about things from your perspective. Help us to see you in the burning bush with a sense of awe as you operate in the world. And remove our shoes when we are on holy ground. We know that is a tall order since we are finite beings and you are infinite in wisdom and understanding. We really need your help today. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was in the third grade, I had to do a science experiment. I built a terrarium. And in that terrarium, I had cars and houses and little plastic guys and ladies and stuff like that and trees and all that kind of stuff in third grade. So I had a dream that night. And in the dream, I dreamed that this terrarium was like the whole earth. And it was like an experiment. And God was the creator of this terrarium. But in this dream, God was very impersonal. And it was just like a science experiment. It wasn't personal at all. So I woke up with a lot of fear. 
And I, I decided I didn't want to go to heaven. I did not want to live forever. That, that didn't, I, the, the, the infiniteness of that was too much for me to handle. Third grade. But I missed something. I missed that God is personal. I was not a person that was the result of a random event in a universe that was impersonal. That was not reality. I missed that as a third grader. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about how Jesus deconstructs that natural impersonality of our existence to bring the personal God where we are made in his image and we are here to serve his purposes and his mission here on the earth. So I, I, I love that song about extravagant love because it really is about extravagant love and in that song about friendship. It's about extravagant love and friendship. So when we think about how God frames these in the four Gospels, the God, God uses different perspectives to get to different people. And we know that the book of John and Matthew were written to believers. But Mark and Luke were primarily written to non-believers. We know that in this process that Mark is mostly about what Jesus did. Action to action to action, all the miracles that he did. Matthew and Luke use lots of story and parables. They're mostly about what Jesus said, recounting all the things Jesus said. But Mark and then John, sorry, John is about figuring out, and it's the last gospel written during times of trial to seasoned believers, that it was about, you know, who was this Jesus? It was about who he was. So for Matthew, Jesus was the king of the Jews. For Luke, he's the savior of the world. For John, he's the son of God. But for Mark, he is the son of man. It's about the God-man. It's about the, uh, the Adam, the first Adam, and now the second Adam, who is totally divine. And so we see that John Mark, who is the cousin of Barnabas, spends time first with Paul, then with Luke, and finally with Peter. And Peter is gripped by all the things that he sees Jesus do. And this, this guy who's on the one hand so bold, on the other hand so fearful, you know, when Jesus is brought, you know, by the Roman soldiers, you know, and he denies Christ. So that this is mixed in him. But we see that ultimately, it's the friendship with Christ. It's the personal aspect of, and seeing all those miracles that Jesus did that brings Peter to be the rock 
on which the church is built. So we see in Mark, as we look at this, there's a sequence here. The beginning of Mark, all the miracles, the crowds come. Then we see the opposition, people coming against Jesus. Then we see Jesus turning to the 12 and instructing the 12. And finally, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the three. And then at Caesarea Philippi, he asked Peter, who am I? And, Jesus, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Sorry, I don't trust technology. <laughs> I've got both. Old guy, gray hair. But Peter had the wrong idea of Jesus. Jesus was coming as a warrior king. You know, they had been waiting a thousand years for the kingdom since David. And so there is this sequence of events that happens in Ezra chapter 4 that kind of looks through this, the, the sequence of ten things about the coming of the Messiah. And so they were all hooked into that idea of what the Messiah would look like and what he would do. And so Jesus sees all the religiosity and is going through this process of reconstruction, deconstruction, and then reconstruction. And he sees all these things. And he's trying to make this shift to give them an idea of how it, how it happens that it's not the warrior Messiah, it's the suffering servant Messiah. It's a, it's a different, different Messiah than the, what they expect. So we know that this warrior Messiah is out of a, of a spirit of fear. You know, the Jewish people are, are fearful because of their Roman overlords. And you know, we live in a crazy time now, don't we? And Satan uses a spirit of fear and lies. And you know, this, this probably is the craziest time in my life in the world, I would say. Just my opinion. This is a crazy time. And Satan is using that to undermine the kingdom and to bring lies and to bring fear. And Jesus is trying to say, okay, um, it's not about fear. It's about faith. It's about belief. And it's about relationship. And it's about being personal. And that's something, and I am someone you can trust. So he's reconstructing that idea. So he begins doing this with actions. So we saw in chapter 11 that he rides in on a donkey where a king would ride in on a horse. And so he, what he does is he goes from the Mount of Olives, he goes through the Kidron Valley up to the east gate of the Temple Mount. And picture this for just a second. So the Temple Mount runs north to south in Herod's day, in the time of Jesus. And just north of the Temple Mount is the Roman garrison, where all the Roman soldiers are. 
So Jesus comes in from the east, and that gate is now bricked up, and there's a, there is a graveyard around it to keep the Jesus out in the second coming. It's not going to work. Um, but he comes up to that gate, and instead of turning north to the Roman garrison, he turns south. People are not happy with that because they want a warrior king. He turns south, and he goes down to the steps. So the steps, they are leading up to the Temple Mount. That's where Jesus, when he's a 12-year-old, is there, and people are amazed by the things that he says right there on the steps. It's the place where in Acts, thousands are come to the Lord and are baptized right there. It's also the place where Abraham brings Isaac up to that place for the sacrifice. But the ram in the thicket is there, is found. It's right there where Jesus goes. And then he, you know, in, in, in and so th this is kind of a foreshadowing of, you know, Jesus, you know, as the Lamb of God, right? So he's, he's right there, and he goes in and inspects the temple. As you'd inspect a house before you would purchase it, just looking every place. But then he leaves, and he comes back, and you know the story of the fig tree that was withered, which, which is a reflection of, of the way Jesus sees the leadership and the church at that time, you know, not having any fruit, which saddens him. And so we move to that where he's preparing the disciples and he talks about faith with the disciples. And he says, if you have faith, you can move this mountain into the sea, but you have to believe. And he sees what's coming. He sees his passion. He knows he's going to be killed. He's going to go to the cross. So he's preparing them for this time, you know, as their leader, preparing their hearts for that time. So we see just at the end of chapter 11, which moves into the story of the vineyard from chapter 12, that Jesus is preparing the disciples, and he's the elders come and challenge his authority. They saw that he just cleansed the temple, and, you know, by what authority do you do this? And so they are ticked off. They are upset at Jesus. And so we'll, we'll move into chapter 12. And we see that, let me just read the scripture. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tennis to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said, 
to one another. This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So, who are the characters in this story? The owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is the people of Israel. The tenants stand for the rulers of Israel throughout the history of the nation. The servants whom the owner sent stand for the prophets. The son is Jesus himself. So this parable tells us certain things about God. It tells us of the generosity of God. He did everything to build this vineyard in an excellent way. And he supplied a wall to keep out the wild boars and to keep robbers out. He had a tower to store the, to store the wine and, and to have lodging and to, to watch out for robbers. And, you know, he had vats for the wine. He provided everything. It tells us of the trust of God. He left the tenants to work the land. And God gives us freedom to make choices in life. We're given freedom. It tells us of the patience of God. He sent messenger after messenger after messenger. God is so patient with us, isn't he? Isn't he so patient with us? all the mistakes that we have made. But it also tells of the ultimate triumph of the justice of God. He is not going to let this end without coming to bring justice. And sometimes we forget that. This parable also tells us something about Jesus. It tells us that Jesus regarded himself not as a servant, but as the son, a well-loved son. It also tells us that Jesus knew that he was going to die. This is not a surprise to him. It tells us that Jesus was sure of his ultimate triumph, that in the end, there would be triumph through what he did. He knew that. This parable tells us something about people, tells us something about us, doesn't it? We abuse our freedom and his patience. But the day of reckoning comes. It will come for all of us with the choices that we make. If a man refuses his privileges and his responsibilities, they pass on to someone else. So we know that in Romans chapter 11, the promises of God remain for the Jews. 
But the Lord will build his church on the rock of a common fisherman named Peter. Because the leaders did not honor God with their lives. So this parable closes with an Old Testament quotation, which became very dear to the church. The quotation about the stone that was rejected is from Psalms 118. The rejected stone was the stone that bound the corners of the building together, the most important stone of all, which was later written about in Acts 4, 1 Peter 2, Romans 9, and Ephesians 2. As the psalmist saw it, the nation which had been regarded as of no importance would someday in God's economy become the source of salvation for the whole world. For us here at Maranatha, we are grateful for Israel bearing the rage of Satan for 2,000 years up to this point to bring forth the covenants, the promises, the scriptures, the prophets, and even the Messiah. To be clear, while we know there are certainly existential concerns on both sides of the current conflict in Israel, they're existential on both sides, but we appreciate that Scripture tells us the ultimate hope for the restoration of all creation, the Messiah, came from the Jews. That Scripture tells us that. So there are three questions that happen next that are posed to Jesus. The leaders see what Jesus is doing here. This is a pretty clear story to them. They see that he's calling himself the Messiah, and they are upset about this. And so they begin talking to themselves, what can we do to confound this guy? So there are three questions that happen. The first question is a political question. The second is a theological question by the Sadducees, who are called Sadducees. They don't believe in afterlife because they are sad, you see. The final question is a scriptural question. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who we, they are but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed.
So we see they come with flattery and cunning to try to disarm Jesus. And we know from history that in 4 BC, Herod the Great dies, and he has he appoints three to take over. And one of those is Archelaus, who does such a miserable job that the Jews ask Rome to come in and replace him, which is why we have Romans in the area, in Judea and Samaria. They asked for them. So the census that was taken just before Jesus' birth in Luke is by the Romans that correlates with this. The coinage is the power of the king. The king's had an inscription. So there are three principles in the New Testament about government. Government is ordained. There are benefits from government. And God's image is on us so that ultimately our allegiance is to God before government. In all this political turmoil that we're having in America that we see, our allegiance has to be to God first because we were made in the image of God so God owns us just like Caesar owns those coins. We have to be those people in the midst of the hopelessness of our day, right now, to speak to the Matthew Perrys of our world with kindness and with hope, those people that are hopeless, and to be able to speak to them. God calls us to do that. The second question posed is by the Sadducees, who say that there's no resurrection, and they came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, the first married and died, leaving no children, the second died, and on through the third through the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. At resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So what is the real theological question here? It's not just about afterlife. It's assuming that we know more than we really know. Heaven will be different from earth. And our view of things is different from God's view of things. What's the main theological question in this scripture? It's about the power of God. It's about God's ability to change things with his power. Do I believe that I can be changed by the power of God? Do we believe that God can change the world? Do we believe that God has the power to make a difference in our lives and in the, and in the world? It's all about power. 
And what it, what it calls for is an exchange. What is that exchange? What does the power allow us to exchange? It, it allows us to exchange fear for belief. That our natural thing, when we see circumstances that are troubling, whether it's politics or in the world or war, all the things happening in the Middle East, Ukraine, our natural tendency is to get fearful. But what is the Lord calling us to do? To exchange that fear for believing in a personal God who cares about what's going on and has the power to make a difference. He can make a difference. What is the third question posed? One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, one man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask more questions of Jesus. So this is quoting from the Shema, from Deuteronomy, but also about loving God, but also from Leviticus about loving your neighbor, which makes, as Sandy said, makes love the basis of true religion. And it includes the nations. It's not just about the Jews. So what's the big deal? These are in the Bible. Anyone could have quoted these. Here's the deal. This is the first time in Scripture that these two Scriptures were quoted together. No one had ever put together the Shema from Deuteronomy with talking about your neighbor in Leviticus. It never had been done before. Jesus did that. So a good Christian loves God first and then their neighbor. And it's okay to love yourself. Self-loathing is not biblical. But we need to see our sin as this man that asked the question. Confess our sin and ask God for help. Next, Jesus goes on the offensive three times. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet under your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large, the large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Then Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put in and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, 
But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worthy of only a few cents. So Jesus first attacks the idea of a purely human Messiah. And Jesus is pointing to his own divinity here. The second is a challenge to the clergy for covering up greed and personal advancement with religiosity. And how many leaders have we seen fall in the last year or two from making really bad decisions? So I think that all of us need to do this about how much of this is for show and what is true. And so the third is the story of the widow's might, which is my second favorite scripture in the word of God. The first is from Philippians chapter two. But my second is this. And so what's the point of this story? I mean, it's about money. And she gave out of her lack. But this includes all aspects of our life. So when we have a bad day, and we praise the Lord, even after a bad day. Or someone is mean to us, and we return that meanness with kindness. That's hard to do. But God sees that. And it's just like the widow's might, who gave out of very little. And when we are having a hard time in our life, God sees that. He sees when we praise his name, even when things are really troubling for us. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, you are not impersonal and distant. Lord, we are made in your image, the image of a personal God, which allows us to feel comfort in the midst of life's trauma. God, your view of things is different from our view, and you gave the, power to gave the power to change what appears to be hopeless. Jesus, you came as the Son of Man, who is both God and man, so you can understand our struggles. Jesus, you came as a Jewish man, but came to restore the whole earth, you came to bring the one new man, Jew and Gentile, together. Jesus, you came as the suffering servant who shepherds the lost and the lowly. Jesus, you came to bring true religion where we love God first so that we can then love ourselves and others. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close by singing this song.